You are listening to Cut Jib Newsletter Speaks, the podcast. This is series number four, episode number five for Thursday, uh, July the 6th, 2023. It's JJ Sefton here along with my good friend and colleague, CBD. And once again, returning to the show as a guest, Robert Spencer is the uh, founder and head of Jihad Watch. Dot com, I believe, unless it's jihadwatch.org, in my mistake, but we'll, we'll check on that. Robert. Both will work. It both will work. Okay. He is uh, a prolific author, uh, reporter, and, and commentator and, on both jihad and, uh, and socialism, which are basically two, two sides of the same rotten coin. Uh, you can see many of his works in places like PJ Media and Front Page Mag. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be back, gentlemen. Thank you. You bet. You bet. So, I'm actually quite pleased that, that Mr. Spencer is here, obviously because of what is going on in France. And I have some emotional connections uh, to France. Uh, my parents lived in Europe for many years, and uh, and France was a focus of, of their lives. And so I went as a child and even as an adult. And I have observed with some chagrin and not a, not a little bit of sadness what is essentially the destruction of of French culture, which has accelerated in the past several days. Yes, no doubt about that. It's in France is in deep crisis. It's a crisis that was entirely foreseeable and entirely preventable and entirely self-inflicted, but it could result in the demise of the Fifth Republic. It could result in civil war. It could result in any kind of authoritarian state being established in France. We shall see. And just hearing you you comment about this, it's just I mean I know it's serious, but and I know government's coming down, but the the you know really the descent into things like civil war and uh, things of that nature, I don't know necessarily if it is as we talk about the CBD mentioned the you know the demise and you Robert of, of of France, is it in the nature of today's French uh, French man and French woman to you know to to, to engage in or having to engage in something like this, or will they just meekly sort of, you know, lie back and take it? It's it's unbelievable. Obviously, the whole thing for people who are wholly unaware of this started about a week ago when a an Algerian youth was uh, involved in uh, some sort of a confrontation with police. They chased him, and and ultimately he was shot and killed as a result of his encounter, which sounds awfully familiar to what happened in this country a few years ago. But this is really something that's uh, quite shocking. It's may- maybe even in a way more shocked than what happened, or maybe it's similar in, in a way to what happened here, as I said, with George Floyd in 2020. Give us your take on this as to, as to what's going on on the ground and maybe what's, what, what is lying in the immediate future. Well, it's comparable to the George Floyd riots. It's probably funded by a lot of the same people, and a lot of the same elements are present. That is... Uh, communist activists such as Antifa. But the difference between the George Floyd riots and what's going on in France now is the Islamic element. And uh, France is 10% Muslim today, and the largest growing element of the French population is the Islamic population. The Muslims in France have made no secret for years of their knowledge of the demographic trends and their delight in the demographic trends, which will make, unless there's some cataclysmic change, it will make for a Muslim majority in France before the end of this century. And that will be probably the herald of an Islamic state. Uh, That is the big difference, that uh, in America, the Islamic population is much smaller 
And while there were Muslims who were involved in the George Floyd riots, there was a Muslim lawyer in New York City who threw a Molotov cocktail into a police cruiser, and there were others involved as well. At the same time, these were not primarily riots with an Islamic element, but in France, the rioters are screaming Allahu Akbar, they are targeting and burning churches and other Christian installations, and they are making no secret of their confidence that they will soon be in charge of France. Now, you're quite right that at the same time, it's unlikely in the extreme that a large number of French people are going to have any will to resist this, but will rather uh, face the new regime with resignation. At the same time, there are some, and it's an increasing number in light of the riots just this past week, as well as others previously, there are some who will resist and who have no interest in seeing or living under a, an Islamic Republic of France. And so that's why I think civil war is likely and also some kind of interim regime, some kind of authoritarian leftist regime that will soon be overwhelmed by the Islamic element and uh, defeated just as the left allied with the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran back in 1979 and thought they could ride the tiger and ended up being thrown into prison by Khomeini and the coalition destroyed as he established an Islamic Republic. I expect that will be the outcome in France ultimately, but it might take us a while to get there. When, when you think about what, what Robert Spencer has just discussed, he is discussing the demise of one of the pillars of Western culture. France, uh, for all of its issues until recently, was a vociferous defender of that culture, uh, more French culture than Western culture. But it is one of the glories of 3,000 years of Western development. And for him to suggest that it is going to be a Muslim majority in 100 years and very possibly a, an Islamic republic is shocking. And I think it should be a wake-up call for the rest of the world. Of course, it will not be. I always pegged uh, Britain was going to fall first. I always thought that Westminster Abbey, you know, God forbid, perhaps even in my lifetime, and I'm in my 60s, I don't know how much longer I have, but in any event, I would think Westminster Abbey was going to become the next uh, Hagia Sophia. But when Notre Dame in Paris burned a couple of years ago, under very, very sort of suspicious uh, circumstances, now coupled with this, yeah, this is really a, a cold shock, but it's it's really fascinating, though, when you go, Robert, when you mentioned going back to how this was totally preventable and we go back decades to, you know, French colonialism and you know, obviously in, in Islamic countries in North Africa, they opened the floodgates for the for these people to come to France in the wake of that. And yet, uh, on the one hand, they rejected them. They didn't they didn't want them necessarily as part of French culture. They were very racist. And on the other side of it, the Islamic immigrants didn't want to become part of the French uh, society. So they basically created these uh, these no-go zones, the banlieue, uh, that are basically countries within a country and armed camps, really, that are sort of the, the spearhead or the front of, uh, of a slow-going invasion, if you will, of, uh, of Islam. It's really the schizophrenia is, is of, of, the, of the French character and of the French society. Is, it's something to really ponder. And also now we see the, the fruits of that schizophrenia uh, coming to the fore. Well, I think that it's important to note that it's not just uh, French colonialism. Um, it's 
I mean, French colonialism, yes, it, it, it gave all these people in Morocco and Algeria and such the idea that they had some kind of a right to go to France and live. Uh, and they have. But at the same time, I think a an overlooked aspect of this is the energy crisis from the 1970s. Uh, the Arab League at that time entered into a series of agreements with the European Commission. And this was because the European Commission was thoroughly rattled by the energy crisis and looking at a situation where oil might be too expensive, so expensive that it would impoverish the European continent. And so the, the European Union actually entered into a series of agreements with the Arab League that uh, guaranteed that Europe would have access to oil at reasonable rates and that in exchange for those reasonable rates, the, uh, the European Union would allow for large-scale Arab Muslim immigration into Europe and would not require assimilation. And the idea behind these agreements, and this is all detailed in the uh, very important work of the historian Batya Or, Arabia, the idea behind these agreements was to ensure that uh, also the aging European population would not create a labor crisis in Europe, but that the Arab Muslim immigrants would take the jobs that the Europeans were no longer able to fill. Not that they were not willing, although that was part of it, because you know, affl relatively affluent people don't want to take menial jobs and so on. That was part of it. But the uh, main aspect of it was that these people would make up for the declining population in Europe. But the Europeans explicitly agreed in a series of agreements, a series of deals with the Arab League, that there would be no assimilation, that the Muslims in Europe would be allowed to establish Sharia enclaves, where Islamic law was enforced and the law of the land was ignored. And that's what has led to the current situation. This was something that the European Union explicitly and knowingly agreed to do and were, was completely heedless of the possible conflicts that it would create. But now they are dealing with them. Wow, that is, that is something that I really... That I was wholly unaware of, and uh, I, my, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, sort of humbled by my ignorance of that. But that is a, that's just incredible that they just had no idea that that would happen, or they just didn't. They looked the other way. Amazing. Well, one of the one of the issues with what Mr. Spencer has described is the fact that that what he has described has been called a far right conspiracy. It's been called fascism. It has been denied in the mainstream media for years and years and years, even though the amount of data that suggests that what he just described absolutely did occur uh, is overwhelming. This is part and parcel of a media that are completely on board with the idea of Western culture being subsumed within the third world. And this is this is leading to the obviously leading to the destruction of France. It will lead to the destruction of Great Britain, and it might very well lead to the destruction of the United States of America. This is a very important point. 
Batya Orr is a serious historian, uh, very important, does very important work, but has been dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. I would doubt that anyone who dismisses the book Eurabia as a conspiracy theory has actually read it, or if he or she has read it, then he or she is not being honest, because Batya Orr has the receipts in Eurabia. I was I referred several times a minute ago to explicit agreements between the Arab League and the European Commission. And those agreements are quoted at length and carefully cited in the book Eurabia. This is not some uh, crazy theory put together by somebody with a tinfoil hat. She's got the texts of the agreements that were signed at the highest levels of the Arab League and the European Union and they have made for the current situation. But you're absolutely right. The political and media elites today, they are completely on board. They're socialist internationalists and they want to destroy the nation states of Europe as well as those of North America. And so they're completely on board with this program. And so they are ruthless in defaming and dismissing those who call call attention to it and speak the truth about this initiative. Well, it's the same thing that's happening here with the people, like I, I guess with uh, President Trump and others who have Tucker Carlson amongst, just to name a few, talking about with the situation with the southern border and the erasure, erasure of that border and, and of our, our national identity by by literally millions of uh, Latin Americans coming here and uh, and becoming citizens or not not having to become citizens and just their presence of showing up. Of course, anybody who says that, who utters the word, uh, you know, population replacement or, you know, society replacement or whatever is labeled as a uh, racist, a xenophobe and, uh, and a conspiracy nut. But it's the same thing that's uh, that's happening there that's happening here. And I'm sure before too long, well, now in the in the in the in the, in the wake of the demise of the Afghanistan debacle, how many thousands of, uh, of Muslims from Afghanistan are going to show up here or are here already? And uh, you know, the same thing again. Two sides of the same rotten coin. And yeah. let's let's talk about those Afghans who've come here. Uh, they clearly uh, it was more random than not, and apparently the majority of them are men. And uh, if you if you suggest to me that Afghan male Afghans uh, are not combat hardened terrorists, well, okay, you know we can we can discuss that. But certainly many many of them who have come to the United States and perhaps in, even into Europe are terrorists. And they've seen combat. They know how to fight. They know how to exert their will over a population. And and unfortunately, as we see in France, it is very, very possible. Robert, I have a question about the progress of the failure of government in uh, that sounds strange in France. What can Macron do about this that he isn't doing? And what will happen if he fails and there really is a groundswell to push him out? What Macron needs to do is end immigration from Muslim countries. He will never do that because he's a leftist and the left is convinced themselves and is trying to convince the rest of the world that any kind of restrictions on immigration are racist. And so uh, he's not going to be a racist. He's not going to act to do that. What's more, what he would have to do is follow through on deportations. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority, I believe the percentage is in the 80s, of the Arab Muslim criminals 
who are deported from France, or ordered deported from France, that is, are never actually deported. They just stick around in the country. And of course, this creates for all manner of situations in which you have people committing crimes who the government is on record saying they have no business being in the country at all. But they're there because the French law enforcement is either unwilling or unable to do what it takes to find them and get them out and enforce the deportation order. And so you gotta wonder if that's the case, if the French government even has the will to deal with this problem. But yes, if he were really gonna try to solve it, he would deport everybody who's been ordered deported. He would deport a great many more criminals as well. And he would secure the borders of France so that nobody's coming in. The, the Western, the populations of the West have been thoroughly propagandized to think that they have some responsibility to take in everybody who's in trouble everywhere in the world. Well, the world is full of trouble. The world is full of authoritarian regimes. The world is full of armed conflicts. And n nobody is saying that Saudi Arabia or Iran or Pakistan, or for that matter, Russia or China has any obligation to take in a single refugee from these troubled areas. It's only the West that has to do it. Why does the West have to do it? There's no reason for that whatsoever. It's just constantly pounded into the population that this is something that the West has to do or else we're racist and bigoted. And so he has to stand up to that attitude. Will he do that? No, of course he won't, because that's what his opponents, Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, that's what they are arguing, that this all should be stopped. And he's the opposition to that. He's the representative of the idea that it, is, it should all continue and that France has some responsibility to take in these people. And so uh, the things that have to be done are just the things that he was elected not to do. And so they ain't going to happen. So what about Le Pen and Zemmour? Is there any possibility of a resurgence of the right to take control of the Fifth Republic? Yes, certainly. Uh, they could conceivably win an election and try to start to right the ship, but they just had an election. And so uh, Macron is going to be there for several more years. There would have to be a military action, a military coup to remove him and a call, an extra constitutional call. In other words, there would have to be the fall of the Fifth Republic and a call for a new election in, in a Sixth Republic or something that would allow for Zemmour or Le Pen to take power. Otherwise, you've got Macron for the next few years. You know, there was an article that I that I linked to this morning about the World Health Organization. It's kind of tangential, maybe it is related. They're going to have a conference, I think, next year to discuss what sort of crises can happen whereby literally the United Nations and, and so on and so forth can exert influence and power over the countries of, of the world, especially the United States of America, to ensure, to, to basically to take control, to use it as a pretext like they did uh, to sort of make what 2020 happened into you know, a Tea Party in comparison. And so you got to wonder what is going to happen if, if the situation really continues down the path that it has over the last week in France. 
if the military or somebody is so disposed to literally call for to, for Macron to remove be removed from office or to physically remove him from office, which would be ironic because France, as a member of the EU, is uh, constantly you know bitching and moaning at Hungary and Poland for doing the very things that the French people are now probably crying out for. That is to close their borders and to kick out these invaders. So the situation is. It's really fraught with so much danger that if, if something were to happen like this, could, like that, I, I imagine uh, the people in Davos and Brussels and wherever could just use that as the pretext to move in and to crush any kind of um, you know, opposition to, to this uh, madness that's going on. It's a dangerous situation. I think it's, it's escalated. We're not, you, you certainly have, have, uh, are raising the alarm bells over it. It's being ignored, all but ignored here in this country. And I don't really see it in any of the mainstream. Uh, media except in passing. This is a dangerous situation we're at in, in history. It's yeah. interesting, though, that you mentioned Poland. Poland is doing everything that it can to protect traditional Poland, and they're doing a wonderful job. Of it. They don't take people who crash their borders. They take legal immigrants. I don't know how many, but they take zero illegal immigrants. If they catch them, they throw them out. They have claimed that there are no illegal immigrants in Poland. I assume that's hyperbole, but the fact remains that Poland is a vibrant Western country right now that is vigorously defending its borders and successfully so. It is kind of funny, though, how France, I've always thought of France as and the French people as very, very, very jealous guardians of their culture to the point where they used to have these laws uh, anti what was known as franglais, which was the introduction of, uh, of English expressions into the language like la hamburger and le weekend. So they'll fight that. They'll fight La Hamburger in the weekend, but they'll bring in millions of Muslims like, you know, whatever, like, like it's nothing. And look what they're doing to their culture. Well, you know, that is a result of a very concerted propaganda effort that's been going on for two decades and more. You have uh, the complete stigmatization and marginalization of people who have been calling attention to the nature of Islamic teaching. And you have the idea that even just to point out that Islam has doctrines of violence and warfare and conquest of non-Muslims is somehow racist, Islamophobic, bigoted, something that all decent people reject. And so the French have been thoroughly propagandized into that attitude. And that is how they have dealt with the migrants coming from Muslim countries, that the only people who oppose this are these terrible right-wing racists. And so it's uh, only natural that they would drop all their defenses and be completely on board with the mass migration program, because they've been told by every authority, literally every authority, in France, in the politics and media, that this is what decent people support. And if you oppose it, then you are beyond the pale of acceptable discourse. Well, by the way, for those who don't realize it, uh, Robert Spencer, you just described yourself, your clarion calls about this, which are, believe me, are not racist whatsoever. All you're doing is reading from the Quran and the Hadith and all of these other Islamic teachings of the last 1500 years. You and, and people like Pam Geller and, and you're, you're literally, I don't know, legally or whatever, you're like persona non grata in, in England, if not the rest of Europe. And look what's happening. The chickens are coming home to roost. Well, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, as one of the people who was speaking out about this as a threat, 
the uh, governments of Europe and of the UK in particular, and the media in the in North America and Europe, they worked against us and painted us as some kind of terrible people. I still see it regularly on Twitter that sometimes, uh, because I still keep up Jihad Watch that reports on jihad activity, uh, and I see people responding saying, what, your sources, somebody cites a report from Jihad Watch, and then somebody else says, your source is Robert Spencer, as if, you know, how could you quote this terrible person? And this is just the result of this propaganda. It's, uh, it's, it's been very effective. And we have to keep in mind that it's been so effective in places such as France and Germany and the UK that most people are absolutely afraid. They've been conditioned that it's it's wrong to speak out against what is so obviously happening. They have to take it or they're, they'll be ruined professionally and personally. Most people couldn't stand the pressure of uh, opening up the internet every day and seeing what a terrible person they are. <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned this uh, the last time Mr. Spencer was on our podcast, that it really is enlightening to go to Wikipedia and the various leftist screeds and read about him because apparently he's a terrible person. And I'm, I'm waiting for that for that man to to appear on our podcast. But uh, in the meantime, we have we have the thoughtful one. Um, so on, uh, on Jihad Watch, I think either today or yesterday, I don't recall what, yeah, it was this morning, you had a, uh, a short article about an appearance at the French National Assembly by the Minister of the Interior of France. Now, this, this is occurring either yesterday, yeah, it must have been yesterday. He claims that only 10% of the rioters were foreign, while 90% were French citizens. So even today, they are defending the insanity of diluting France with Islam. Obviously, the 90% who were French citizens are recent immigrants who, who got their French citizenship through either subterfuge or through the, the, the lax laws of France. But they are Muslim, they're Islamic, and by no stretch of the imagination are they French. And what they're doing today, I believe, is flexing their Islamic muscles and showing France that they will soon be in charge, and that in fact, they are in charge of the street today. It's the Minister of the Interior, uh, Gerard Darman, and I don't know how to say his name, but anyway, uh, you probably do. But in any case, he's being patently and flagrantly deceptive by pointing out that most of the rioters were French citizens, because as you noted, they don't think of themselves as French. Uh, jihadis think of themselves as the citizens of the Ummah, the international Islamic community. And so while they may have French citizenship, that's just a legal nicety and a convenience and has nothing to do with their actual allegiance. Uh, Darmanin is trying to give people the impression that the majority of the rioters are uh, not the migrants, are not the Muslims, but are French people. Now this is flagrantly false and I have numerous reports at Jihad Watch of them screaming Allahu Akbar, I've got the video of burning churches, all this kind of thing that makes it very clear who they are. But uh, I'm sure that he's right. They are French citizens, but it doesn't mean what he wants us to assume that it means. Well, we have citizens here who are, they were born here and raised here, 
and yet uh, they're about as alien as, as these French citizens. And they belong to uh, Antifa, they belong to BLM and all these other groups that are committing acts of uh, terrorism and violence against the citizenry here. It's like calling George Soros, you know, there, there's a name for you. It's like everyone is getting all up in arms when you criticize George Soros, you're being an anti-Semite, which is, you know, disgustingly, you know, ironically hilarious of a, in between you're, you're throwing up, you laugh at it. Because George Soros's heritage was a, a father who who renounced his, his Judaism, and he and his son both collaborated with the Nazis to appropriate property of the Jews that they sent off to Auschwitz. This man is a, 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 a hates his birthright. Same thing with these people. They have they are about as American as you know. I mean, forget they're even openly saying are, are you know at reparations meetings and so on and so forth, basically blasting the United States of America and 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 you know blasting their birthright here. So it's like what what, what does it mean to be a citizen when in that regard? But in this case, as uh, Robert you, you point out, yes, they see the the uh, the French quote unquote citizens these. Uh, Muslims, they see themselves as Muslim first and French merely just by by geography. They're there as the advanced guard to spread uh, the global caliphate. And that's pretty much what's going on here. I think the leftists who are riding this tiger are going to be in for a rude awakening when once, uh, God forbid, France does fall and become an Islamic republic, like like the the, the uh, strident Bolsheviks here, they're going to be the first ones that are lined up against the wall and shot. Yes. What's interesting uh, is that Israel is uh, riding that same tiger right now. They have unrest in in Judea, which is obviously part of, in my opinion, part of Israel. That's uh, otherwise called the West Bank, the disputed territories. They're getting this this renewed terrorism coming, emerging from from some of the more aggressive Iranian-backed organizations. But they also have many, many, many people who are considered Israeli Arabs. And th- that's the tiger I am talking about because they are not monolithic. They're, I mean, uh, uh, certainly some of them are going to support the caliphate. They're going to support. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't recall the, the word that you used, Robert, to describe the worldwide uh, the, Islamic. Uh, the Ummah, U M M A. Yes. So they, they are. They, they. Some of these people consider themselves part of the Ummah, and Israel has to to tread very, very lightly with them because they are, by some, by many definitions, part of Israel. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see in the next generation how that plays out because you can see in France today that it doesn't play out well at all for the West. How Israel deals with it in the next 20 years or so is going to be very, very telling. Indeed. Robert, what's going on in the countryside in France? Well, the countryside is just as vulnerable, but it's not as populated by the Muslim immigrants. And so it's not having the same kind of uh, experience that the cities are. However, this is something that, interestingly enough, uh, Macron has moved to remedy. Uh, He has actually said that it would ease unrest in the cities if the migrants were sent out into the countryside. (laughs) Yes, I know it sounds crazy, but nonetheless, this is what he said. And so uh, I don't know how much that plan has been implemented as of yet, but what he's clearly trying to do, I mean, he's trying to relieve the pressure on the cities, but he's also trying to spread the misery around. And so it's only a matter of time 
before the countryside in France is just as in flames as the city. So this is very similar to the the leftist plan in the United States. Yeah. You know, moving moving the the new immigrants into the suburbs and into the countryside. Yes, um, exactly. That's a political move insofar as trying to again affect the voter registration as if they need to affect voter registration when they can just rig the damn ballots. But uh, ultimately yeah. that yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. Let's take a little bit of a break and we'll come back and regroup with Robert Spencer and CBD. It's JJ Sefton for Cup Jib Newsletter Speaks the Podcast. Hang in there. It's, uh, it's Cut Jib Newsletter Speaks, the podcast, uh, J.J. Sefton, CBD, and the great Robert Spencer. And before we just, uh, we, before I clopped in on you over there, as my mother would say, uh, we were discussing what we were going to discuss next. And I mentioned baseball offhanded. And, and uh, Robert, you said you had a joke about the New York Mets. Why not? Yeah, yeah you it. know, I was in New York the other day, and it was terrible. My uh, car got broken into, and it's terrible because I had two Mets tickets. And the guy broke in and left me four more. <laughs> well, our other friend who who hasn't been on in a long time, my friend Harry Stein, is a long-suffering Mets fan, so I think he would appreciate that one too. <laughs> anyway, um, there is another situation that you were you were writing about. How, how, how's that for a really wonderful segue? There was a great speaking of disasters. Speaking of disasters, yeah, yeah my segue. But there was a wonderful and. The, the Supreme Court sometimes, but they've, they're kind of three for four on decisions coming up. And one of them was a decision involving a woman it known, uh, her company is called 303 Creative, and she was uh, taken to court by uh, the, the radical uh, homosexual mafia for refusing to design a website for them. And then the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And basically, hallelujah, they, they uh, declared correctly that uh, a woman cannot, uh, or anybody cannot, does not have to violate their religious beliefs and their conscience to perform uh, services that that they feel violate those uh, those rights. So it's a it was a pretty big victory. It's a huge victory, and I think the left's reaction is interesting. Uh, there's been a spate of uh, pictures on Twitter and elsewhere of people uh, leftists po- posting signs on their business that now that the uh, Supreme Court has said that it's okay to discriminate on the basis of your political views. Uh, we will no longer serve Trump supporters. And I think, you know, what a remarkably dishonest, disingenuous way to react to that Supreme Court decision, when obviously the decision was that people are not to be forced to express views that are not their own. So in other words, uh, somebody doesn't have to bake a cake uh, applauding uh, gay marriage if they're against gay marriage or something like that. Now, nobody's rights are being similarly violated by uh, anyone saying that uh, anyone being a Trump supporter and buying something from a leftist store. Uh, the leftist store owner is not being forced to do anything. 
but leftists are so authoritarian that they would uh, cut off their nose to spite their face and actually post signs saying that a certain segment of customers is not welcome. Uh, and, you know, they're just itching to bar them anyway. It's not surprising because they are authoritarians at heart. But that's nothing like what the Supreme Court actually ruled. But it's actually a, a wonderful thing to, to emerge from this uh, Supreme Court holding. Um, and I'll refer to the to the Bud Light fiasco. You know, these people are self-identifying as anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-liberal fascists. And for them to do that and to announce to the world, well, this is who we are, is a wonderful thing. I'm happy to boycott. I'm happy to keep my money from out of your till and I'll move on to the next door down the streets. Perfectly OK with me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are still more of us uh, conservatives, or at least normal people, than there are of them. So if you want to do that, that's that's perfectly fine with me. But I think that the meat of the argument, though, if you, if you move past the, the leftist stuff, is that I don't even think this woman objected to necessarily like Jack Phillips, the baker. He wasn't he didn't refuse service to to uh, necessarily to bake a cake for a, a gay wedding. He the the customers that came in, they of course they targeted him, and this was intentional. He said, look, I'll sell you the cake, but I'm not going to decorate it. But it's just, I can't, I can't write this message. They could have taken it anywhere they wanted to, but no, they wanted to punish it. I think it was the same thing with 303 Creative. I think the woman uh, said that she would design a website, but th- that she didn't necessarily uh, agree with the views of the website or wanted to write the, what, what the, the, you know, the, be part, be party to uh, writing the views of, of what, uh, what these people wanted. I mean, maybe it's kind of splitting hairs, but I think there is, uh, there is something to say here that's like, I can't just put a sign that says, I don't serve black people. Or, you know, I mean, I mean, we have this, we have this sort of discussion, CBD, you and I, where we were discussing the role of affirmative action to violate, to force someone to violate their conscience. And to violate their religious beliefs and so on and so forth this is this was at the heart of the issue. And it is a, a, a boon and a boost for, for free speech. And again, if somebody wants to hang a sign in their window that says, I don't serve Trump, uh, Trump supporters or Republicans, that's fine by me. So I always admired someone like Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan was constantly over the years asked his, about his political views, he was very cagey. And he said, look, I'm not going to he didn't not necessarily in these words. He goes, why would I want to intentionally alienate 50 percent of my customer base? It's stupid. Whether or not he is a, a liberal or not a liberal or whatever you want to call it. Good for him for keeping his mouth shut. Republicans buy sneakers, too. That's what he said. Uh, it was punitive. And that's very important. The, the left wants to enforce everyone into the same to force everyone into the same intellectual straitjacket. Everybody has to think the same. And those who dare to dissent will be punished. And so this was a uh, very consciously chosen concerted effort on the part of these activists to destroy the baker because he would not submit. And it's designed to terrorize everybody else into submission. Uh, Solzhenitsyn talks about this in the Gulag that the, uh, the, in the Soviet Union, sometimes they would arrest people who were completely innocent. And this was designed, this was not a mistake or an accident. They would arrest them and imprison them and destroy lives without a second thought, because what they were doing was terrorizing the rest of the populace into submission. 
and making them so scared they would think, oh, I, uh, I have to be very careful not to offend the authorities because some people, even though they didn't do anything to offend the authorities, they got arrested anyway. And so you really got to watch and not do anything to get on their bad side. And so it was a useful tool to enforce the docility of the population. You know, I just realized that the word Islam does not translate into peace. It translates into submission. And just as, a, as an amazing how the uh, the wheels within wheels, my friend. Exactly. So, yeah, the, you know, the dissents in this case were actually quite interesting. They're um, quite obviously hyper-emotional crap, you know, talking about how we're, we're going to quickly devolve into opposition to interracial marriage and all sorts of stuff. And this follows what what Robert has talked about, that the left is coercive. And what they want to do is make sure that we say and think what what they believe is to be correct. And that is the fundamental difference between a constitutional republic, which says that you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting other people, as long as you're not affecting other people, and a democracy, and which, of course, devolve inexorably into authoritarianism. That is that you will do what we are we tell you to do. It's as simple as that. And the United States is blurring those lines, unfortunately. And luckily, you know, the six to three majority in the court has pushed back just a little bit. I'm curious what's going to happen with the other Colorado case, the cake baker. That's Jack Phillips, the Peacecake Shop. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this he is... Was, no, Jack Phillips was actually, I believe he was, you know, he was he was vindicated, but they're still going after him. They're, just they're still going after him, yeah. Lawfare, uh, right? I mean, absolutely just ruined him. So on that note, <laughs> Robert, are you still there? I am still here. Yes. <laughs> okay we're either foisting on our own petards or you're you're, you're whatever but we lost you maybe to a uh, no to sorry a- I'm, i was actually just thinking about the cake baker i don't really have anything to add other than what i had said before about him but we have to realize i think in general that the left is totalitarian that uh as david horowitz has said inside every leftist is a totalitarian screaming to get out and uh, that's something that he said years ago, and it was funny, but now I think they're getting out. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just a quip. It's a very prescient observation. Absolutely. The other, the other thing I was thinking about with this the decision with 303 and also with affirmative action is that, and the left has even noticed, I've noticed this in some of their reactions, this puts a huge, and thank God, this puts a huge uh, question mark over all this diversity, inclusion, equity, or equity, inclusion, however you want to spell it, D-I-E, efforts, not just in, in government, but in the private sector. Because, of course, as we all know now, whatever the, the government can't force you to do necessarily, or has the power to do, at least for the moment, they will try to get their allies in, in the corporate America to do a, as well. So, maybe people will not be aside from just not hiring just based on skin color but why should anybody have to sit through this uh, you know whatever however many hours of propaganda and brainwashing about uh, diversity and how horrible america and white people are uh lest they not get the job and then of course you'll have to spout that back uh and verbatim otherwise you may be in trouble you might get fired or not hired in the first place uh the problem here of course as we all know with the courts and with the left uh, gentlemen is that at least from my point of view is that 
as Nancy Pelosi once famously quipped about, uh, I think, Obamacare, uh, if we can't do it, go into the front door, we'll go through the back door. We go to the back yeah. door, we go to the side door. We can't get the side door, we pole vault over the wall. So whatever they can do to sort of subvert the, the spirit of, of this defeat in the court, they will do. Of course, they always go to the courts to impose their will on us. So it's just it's it's par for the course. But yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna stop at this. At least it's a very good. If it's not a speed, hopefully it's not just a speed bump along the way, but hopefully it does. It does at least put a damper on things and opens people's eyes up to uh, the danger that we face with this nonsense. Look at the case uh, that was was filed at, what was it, Missouri v. Biden? Something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, Missouri v. Uh, Biden. Yeah. Um, and a, a federal judge held that, uh, that, the, that the federal government should stop talking to media companies to moderate speech. And the Biden administration just appealed it. I mean, it's a, this is unbelievable stuff. And, you know, 25 years ago, if you had told me that that a, a president is going to push back against a, a an absolutely rational holding by a federal judge uh, restricting the government involving itself in speech, I would have told you you're a, you're a lunatic. You're insane. And yet this is what is this is what happened yesterday. Yep, here we are. But it just goes to show this is a. a, a a deeply authoritarian regime. Remember, this is the regime that wanted to establish a disinformation governance board within the Department of Homeland Security. And it has shown its taste for authoritarianism in numerous ways. And so uh, we shouldn't be in the least surprised that they'd be pushing back against this decision. The decision is really breathtaking. It's got such a huge list in it of the government agencies and officials that were working with the, the social media giants to silence dissent. And that is completely in opposition to the First Amendment. But this administration hates the First Amendment and wants to render it a dead letter, as it does with the second. The third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And yep. Except for the 14th. The, the 14th Amendment they used to, like, to do everything with. It's amazing. Applied only to like the, the status of freed slaves, but of course it means everything—birthright uh, citizenship to who knows what. It's either a shield, it's both a shield and a cudgel. That's what it is to them. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to return to Europe for just a bit and uh, and put uh, Robert on on the spot. What country will fall next? Well, I think Britain is very close, a lot closer than other than most people think, but Germany can't be counted out either. Uh, and Germany, of course, is where we had Merkel in 2015 uh, bringing in over a million uh, Muslim migrants and uh, saying we can do this as if it was some great moral undertaking that the German people had to do. And the uh, extraordinary aspect of it is that they were able to portray all opposition to this as Nazis. And so that is such a trauma in Germany's past that it has effectively bottled up any opposition. And so Germany is galloping forward toward an Islamic authoritarian future, uh, secure in the knowledge that it's not being Nazi. Well, you know, thank, you know, thank God for that. Yeah, only a country that can that can annihilate six million plus Jews can use that as a pretext to import <laughs> to import Muslims who are trying to annihilate the the last eighteen million of them. I mean, uh, this is 
the skit, it's France as well. I mean, you know, the, the, the schizophrenia of these of, of these countries is just uh, it's it's insane, and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna wipe themselves out. I mean, my my poor mother of, of blessed memory who survived a, a stay in Mr. Shaco Gruber's camps. Uh, when she was in Europe many, many years ago, and she noticed the, the increase to Muslims uh, in Vienna, she just said under her breath, she said, good for them. Let them come in and let them, you know, let them take it over for what they did to us. So let them have it good and hard. But yeah. uh, it's a uh, what a situation. So, Robert, the, um, the these Muslim immigrants that are pouring into Europe and have been pouring it into Europe since the 70s, um, who are they? I, I'm, my my only thought is that. Uh, is it perhaps um, similar to what Cuba did in 1980 with the Marielitos that uh, that Islam is emptying their prisons and 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 you know pushing people out of their slums into Europe? Yeah, that's very very likely. And as you noted earlier, I believe they're overwhelmingly young men, and so that belies the entire refugee narrative. Uh, a young man is going to leave his wife and his small children in a war zone that's too dangerous for him to live in. It's it's it strains credulity well beyond the breaking point. These are young men. They're flagrantly deceptive. The vast majority of children of uh, refugee children, so-called, who have been admitted into places like Sweden and Britain turn out to be uh, adults. Who are lying about their backgrounds. They're lying about their backgrounds because there's criminal activity and terrorist activity in those backgrounds. I should also uh, stop here to note that you were asking who's next, and Sweden can't be counted out. That's a very likely candidate to uh, become an Islamic state pretty soon. Um, in any case, the uh, crime rates, the terror rates, the rape rates, have all skyrocketed all over Europe as a result of the entry of these migrants. Now, that's partly because the Quran, the holy book of Islam, nobody wants to talk about this, but nonetheless, it's in there. The holy book of Islam does indeed call for uh, or allow for Muslims to take what it calls the captives of the right hand that are infidel women that can be used as sex slaves, uh, raped with impunity. And this is something that has created this situation, but also the general contempt that Muslims have for non-Muslim law because they consider that Islamic law is the perfect law of Allah. And so they go to these countries that don't enforce Islamic law. They have nothing but contempt for the rule of law in those countries and for the laws themselves. Uh, and so it ends up encouraging them to do these criminal acts. But also, it has to be noted that a lot of these people engage in criminal acts because they're criminals already. And they were doing this in the Muslim countries from which they came. And so it's easy for them to brutalize and victimize Europeans because they were brutalizing and victimizing Syrians or Turks or whatever, uh, wherever they came from. And so it's a tremendously difficult situation for Europe because the whole discourse has been poisoned by cries of racism and bigotry and so on and Islamophobia and that is still the prism through which all too many Europeans see the whole problem and that paralyzes any effective efforts to deal with it. 
You know, I think Pope uh, Pope Francis, who I affectionately refer to as Pope Fiction, uh, he got into a real he got into a real lather the other day. Uh, not because, uh, as I mean, maybe this is I'm cribbing your article, perhaps, or maybe it's I think it is your article, Robert, in one of the, in one of the websites. Not because uh, you know uh, Christians are being butchered and raped in Nigeria or in Europe or wherever, but because some knucklehead from Iraq uh, decided to burn a Koran somewhere. So that, of course, got made made the, the Holy See. Uh, see red, so to speak. I mean, yeah, that was that was the crime. But all these other things that are going on, uh, like rape gangs in Rotherham, which cannot be spoken of, or in Malmo or wherever the heck else, or in Nigeria, where people are being raped, tortured, killed, and, and decapitated. No, we can't talk about that because that would be uh, Islamophobic. Unbelievable. And that's a good in, that's a good example of the general mindset among the European elites. Uh, Pope Francis is pretty typical in his view of the migrants. That is, he can pretty much go to any European country with the exceptions of Hungary and Poland and find that all the governing officials see it as he does, that uh, Europe has a duty to these people, that uh, those who oppose this duty are racists, bigoted Islamophobes, and Europe must accept them uh, without vetting and without regard for the possibility of criminals or terrorists coming in. Uh, this is also why he is so upset about the burning of the Quran, but not about anything in regard to the Muslim persecution of Christians, which of course he doesn't even acknowledge as such, or related phenomena. Uh, he only can see Muslims as victims and the Christians as white oppressors. And even though he is, of course, ostensibly a Christian himself, this holds true uh, nonetheless. You know, there's a great deal of, of uh, self-hatred and uh, self-abnegation in order to avoid charges of bigotry and so on. Well, many of my Catholic friends would argue the uh, point that, uh, that the current Pope is a Christian. Yes. So you, you partially answered my question already, however, um, I'm going to ask it. We've, we've heard about the countries in Europe that are failing, Sweden, Germany, obviously France, and the United Kingdom. Are there any success stories besides Poland and Hungary? Uh, gee, Italy to a small degree, but Italy has been bearing the brunt of the migrant influx because of its geographical location. And so uh, boats come in from Libya all the time, and uh, Italy is swamped with migrants. The new prime minister, Giorgia Maloney, has vowed to resist that, but has been stymied in her efforts so far to a tremendous degree by the Italian left. It's the same thing in Sweden. The Sweden Democrats, very uh, good guys. Interestingly enough, young guys, young Swedes, I spoke there for them about, uh, golly, 12 or 13 years ago, and I was impressed that they were all young young people in their 20s and 30s, and they were uh, a growing party in Sweden, but they were completely hedged around. None of the other parties in Sweden would have anything to do with them because, well, you know, they were supposedly racist and bigoted and Islamophobic. But the situation in Sweden has gotten so bad that they were able to become part of the governing coalition. Uh, nonetheless, the same governing coalition is 
deeply compromised by others who are stymieing any efforts on the part of the Sweden Democrats to try to stem the tide. And so uh, Sweden has shown to some degree that it's waking up to the problem, but the left is so entrenched there that even when a government that leans right has taken power, they're still at it. Oh boy, what a situation yeah. we find ourselves in. Amazing. Um, anyway, I think we're just about at the end of our hour of CBD. Uh, any other parting parting thoughts, parting words uh, from you or from you, Robert? Uh, I, I think we've covered it pretty well. I'm I'm sad about this because um, I have a, a significant emotional connection to France, um, and in fact, uh, the you know the the idea of of a of a France, you know, the glories of Western culture. Um, being absorbed into the what is a rapidly approaching caliphate is uh, is depressing in the extreme, and unfortunately, I don't see any significant resistance to the to exactly the same thing that is occurring in the United States. Uh, not as much Islam as uh, as South America and Central America uh, swamping our borders and and destroying. What I think is is the pinnacle of Western culture, which is American exceptionalism. Uh, you know, I, but things look, can change, so I'm not going to I'm not going to be slitting my wrist just yet. Well, <laughs> yes, history's full of surprises. We never know how this is going to work out. Yes. Right. yes. My thought was just as as you were talking about that CBD, I can only imagine if you remember, however many years ago, when the Taliban blew up the the Buddhas. And I can only imagine the knuckleheads going into the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay and the National Gallery in London and, you know, setting fire to it uh, and uh, doing a nice Goebbels impression by by burning all the books, burning all the artwork. And uh, which is, in essence, what the American left is doing here in this country by uh, tearing down statues and, uh, you know, bodlerizing movies and banning movies and so on and so forth. So, like I said, it's like two two sides of uh, of the same rotten evil coin but as you both note and to try to end on an optimistic note we really can never know the future as bleak and dangerous and frightening as the situation may be there might be some black swan event that uh, wakes us up before we uh, before we sink into the dark ages once again could happen could so happen. Um, okay. before we leave i would like to mention um that uh that robert spencer wrote an interesting book called the critical quran um and if anybody is a is really wants to become uh, more conversant in exactly what the Quran says, uh, it's it's a worthwhile read. Um, I, boy, when did you that that came out last year? Yes, it did. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was I, I grabbed it in the library and I thought, wow, this is uh, this is a little different. Uh, anyway, so Robert, uh, what is your? I, I know that the last time you were here, you mentioned that you um, that you had plans for a book coming out in the the late fall, early winter. I don't recall exactly when. Yeah, I have a book coming November twenty first uh, called Empire of God: How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. It's generally a history of the Byzantine Empire, but with an eye on comparisons to our current situation. And uh, I think people will find it quite illuminating in terms of what a country, what a government uh, can be and should be, as opposed to what we got. 
Well, we will certainly look for that book and uh, have you back on to discuss it. And uh, and I'm sure it's going to be like all of your books, fascinating and must reads. So and, gentle and quite timely. Absolutely timely, without a doubt. So for CBD and the great Robert Spencer, it's JJ Sefton here. Thank you, folks, once again for listening and hitting the tip jar. We really appreciate it. And we will see you once again on the next one. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, folks.